Hello, welcome to this week's episode of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast. My name is Jennifer Apple. And this week I talked to Christina Pumariega, or as I know her, Puma. I was first introduced to Puma through casting director Erica Hart, who we had on episode three of this podcast, if you wanted to go back and listen. When I was looking to put myself into a pilot writing class, I was stuck. I had this pilot spinning in my head for years and I was unable to get it out with just me sitting at my own computer and I needed a structure. Well, after taking Puma's class twice, I have a pilot that I am super pumped about. This episode is not about my own personal pilot, but I'm giving context for how brilliant Puma is and the work that she does. In this episode, we talk all things tangible aspects of TV writing, pilots, and storytelling. Puma shares what inspired her to write her own first pilot and how she ended up landing a writer's room gig and the importance of community. We delve into the intricacies of structure from creating compelling log lines to story engines to ABC breakdowns to character descriptions. We discuss the art of breaking story, carding, the challenges of both starting and ending a script, and the messy process of writing. Plus, we share the value of persistence and discipline and seeking feedback and mentorship and navigating the ever-evolving landscape of the entertainment industry. Enjoy. Christina Pumariega, or as I know you, Puma, how are you? I am good. I am. I am good now that we have a deal. <laughs> oh my God. Thank God. Whoever thought. I honestly, there was a period of time. I didn't think it was going to happen in the fall. I really didn't. I thought it was going to be a January moment. I did. Same. Same. I thought maybe like just around Hanukkah Christmas, maybe yeah. in those yeah those moments, but ugh, it's, it's lovely to have some forward movement. I know. I thought I thought that it was going to be like one of those things that when these corporations looked at their books, they'd be like, oh, we're like, it's not great, but like we can, we can withhold because they're going to be even in the more red than we are. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I think numbers can't really fully lie. And by can't really fully, I mean, they don't. So it's like, if you're going to look at these things and you're going to see what's actually happening, you're going to realize you've hemorrhaged, you've hemorrhaged. I I can't believe I'm going to say this, but I want to say, God bless quarterly reviews that part that part (laughs) that part it's so it's so true but I think that's why I thought January I was like they're gonna look at this quarterly review and be like it's this is bad but it's not broken but I mean praise be wherever out there so this is exciting news um well for anybody who does not know you who are you besides excited about this strike marginally slowly and ending um who are you today I am an artist. I am an actor by training. Um, I'm a writer as well, uh, both a screenwriter and a playwright. And I live in LA, but I spent a lot of time in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, after growing up in the South, Texas, South Carolina, Tennessee, and, and Latina, and Cuban American, and Italian American. And I come from a very garlicky family who doesn't <laughs> understand <laughs> the art making process. Um, but they do I, understand spices. That's a real thing. Yeah. Garlic yeah. is really important. And, yeah. you know, you got to moderate sometimes. <laughs> and other times you just go overkill. 
there's never too much garlic in my opinion personally but um i know puma because i have taken puma's writing class twice Mm -hmm. and that is where i got my pilot finished and it was the only way that it was going to get done. Um, Mm -hmm. I had this living in my brain and Erica Hart, who has also been on this podcast had posted about Puma and I reached out and then it happened. And then I went back and I will continue going back because you're just brilliant as a facilitator, as a teacher, as a writer, as a human. Um, And I'm so grateful that you're in this space with me today to kind of unpack all of these things that I feel have been so helpful for me and also um, are things that I still don't fully know, specifically Mm -hmm. when it comes to writing, specifically when it comes to pilot writing, specifically when it comes to I wouldn't even say transitioning because you are still an actor, but transitioning from really the actor training into Mm -hmm. really owning the writer's hat as both a playwright and a screenwriter. So all of these things I'm really pumped about exploring with you. I'm curious to hear a bit of your background as to really what led you to putting these two hats on more specifically as in your writer hats. Yeah. Um, I thank you for that. Thank you for all of that. Um, I think like so many performers, I had felt that inclination to make very early on. Um, And weirdly, here's something that I think I had like shoved away in like the the dark recesses of my brain or something. I wrote a play when I was eight and this is the Texas public school system for you. They, my teacher let me like choose the best readers from our room and she let me direct both myself and like a whole cast of people in a play about orphans at eight, eight years old in like Tennessee, in the mountains of Tennessee. Um, and they were like orphans from like New York and LA and they met in Tennessee and they had to like learn how to ranch together. Um, I was the orphan rancher, of course. Wait, you and wrote this story? When I was eight. It's so weird. It just kind of came out. And then we performed it for the whole third grade in the library. So I think even before I was aware, a part of me really either wanted a lot of control <laughs> or um, <laughs> was like inherently show running, essentially. Yeah. So like. I like to think that. Um, but I I trained as an actor. I studied journalism as well back in undergrad. Like I was always really attracted to story. Um, but I ended up going to New York straight out of undergrad to get my MFA at NYU. So it was very much like a conservatory mindset. And um, Zelda Chandler was the head of the program at the time. And I think I, I kind of, we were taught to be great craftsmen, I think, Mm -hmm. for like in service of the playwright. And that's not to like undermine what actors bring to the process, but in many ways, I really kind of felt like a good soldier. Mm -hmm. So I felt as though when I first got out of school, I I wasn't hired to do a lot of new plays. I was like right on the hyphen culturally. They kind of didn't know what to do with me. Um, So I did a lot of classical theater, a lot of like athletic, big, you know, like for 800 seat house shows up and down Amtrak line. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but I wanted to do no please so badly. So I started, you know, doing more and more workshops at the Lark 
and new dramatists. And I learned what like artistic facilitation could offer that process. So I was, I was learning how new stories were built. Mm -hmm. Um, working primarily in theater, I just started doing more film and TV as an actor. And on set, I was realizing more and more as I was recurring, actually, that the folks who were in charge of the story in Video Village, the producers, um, not the director, like directing our scene, but the producers were largely cis white men mm -hmm. over a certain age. And I was surrounded by women and people of color, like all around me, like on set and acting alongside me in the makeup trailer, all of this stuff. But that inclusivity did not extend to the story building yeah. aspect of it. So I took note of that around the same time Trump got elected. Mm -hmm. So I felt really catalyzed in, in both arenas at the same time. And finally, I think just the lid just blew off. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a pilot in a month. It just came out of me. And it was about, not surprisingly, uh, the South. And based off of your eight year old show, clearly. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, in many ways, it will never hold a candle to it. A hundred percent. Yeah. So pure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No structure, but it knew what it was. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and it, it was, uh, it's, it's called Dreamers and it's a, my very first pilot. And I just learned as I went, you know, like I'd read the books, but they had kind of gone by the wayside for me because I was not a structure loving person. Like my stage manager provided my stuff structure, you know, like mm -hmm. my, my agents provided, you know, windows into my contract language. I didn't understand what structure could afford me on the page. I just had my impulses as an actor. So I was kind of winging it. And then after it was done, it was horrible. It was really, really bad. But some really trusted friends, um, like a very small group, like gave me great, great notes. And then I took another pass. And then I would bring other trusted friends uh, with more experience into the fold. And so about a year later, after four major rewrites, I sat down with all my fancy TV actor friends and we did a reading at the public and they were so kind to me. The The owner of Joe's Pub at the time, Kevin was like, oh yeah, come and have a reading. And I was like, oh, it's it's not a play. It's it's not theater, it's, it's, it's yeah. a TV. And he was like, oh, well, you know, you perform here, this is your home. So, you know, and it was so lovely and so gratifying to just hear it all in one place facilitated with you know like liz lerman's critical response process mm -hmm. um to understand more comprehensively like what can change what can get better uh what can get deeper mm -hmm. and then i took that script and that great feedback and i went to la with my refund check i was so broke and I sat down with every playwright I knew by way of acting, um, writing for TV. And I would just ask them like what it was like being in a writer's room, not knowing that I even wanted to be in one. Um, I had heard about people buying and selling shows. I had heard about people assisting in rooms. I had no idea uh, where that would lead. But I just kept following those open doors. and. Okay. A year later, I was in my first writer's room. So wild. And it was 
I was put up for it by one of those incredible playwrights who's also an incredible TV writer, Jamie Pacino. And it was about um, civil law in Memphis, Tennessee, which is another state that I'm from. So it was, you know, very, very specific to mm -hmm. the stuff that I'm writing into. And so definitely some magic there. Yeah. But at the same time, like right within my wheelhouse. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think in many ways, like paying attention to like all of the learning mm -hmm. along the way has really, really served me. And yeah. and I like regardless of folks' creative backgrounds, like I'm always super excited whenever anyone says, like, ah, I I have this idea for a thing. I'm like, oh, you gotta write it. You gotta yeah. you gotta write it right now. You know, like and it doesn't matter what the first version of it looks like yeah because that's just like one part of the process well first of all your journey i love so much just because it really none of these no one's journey is the same you know we have to like that's yeah. the frustration of this industry which is you know there is no one way of doing this um so i always find it important to to be reminded of the many different ways that it's possible to have one's creativity propelled. But I find yours so inspiring because it really is all in alignment. You know, it's like clearly, again, as you know, from your little small self, like to this point, you're, there's these threads of uh, similarity and consistency through all of them. You know, mm -hmm. I find so often that people's quote unquote big breaks happen on parts or in roles that are not stretches, <laughs> that are things that mm -hmm. kind of are just like parts of themselves that mm -hmm. somebody was like, yeah, it's because it's you, you know, right. and there's something about owning who you are and letting that be seen that people mm -hmm. respond to because it's authentically yours and no one else's. Mm -hmm. um, and so this being echoed through all parts of your story is so um, clearly drawn out for me, at least like hearing that as the threads through all of it. I'm curious how you find the audacity within yourself to ask your friends for favors, to ask your people to show up, to ask them for meetings, to take up the space that you want and need of these individuals who I would imagine range in terms of their availability, their clout, and also your relationship to them? Yeah. Oh, I love this question. And it is such a dance. Yeah. Um, and, and not a dance that I was willing to do as an actor. Right. Like at all. And I will tell you, I actually would interrupt my own auditions Sometimes if I was bored by the material to pitch other people's work. Um, what do you mean? <laughs> like I would be auditioning for Around the World in 80 Days. Sorry, whoever adapted that, you know, for like a theater in Vermont. Yeah. And the director would have me do it in 17 different accents because that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, the 17th one, I'd say, you know, like, but what kind of stories are you interested in? And then they would have an opinion. And then I would say, well, well, have you read Duncan McMillan? Have you read David Grimm? Have you read, you know, like, wow. and I would pitch my friends. And it just made sense to me because I think a lot of the time 
this is back in the day. I think we're getting better at it. But like the programming was just not reflective of our audiences mm -hmm. and what we're interested in. And how many times can you do a Christmas Carol? You know, like it's, it's, I mean, ask every single regional theater and they'll let yeah. you know. Yeah. It's a big seller. And I, you know, like the numbers don't lie again, but at the same time, like I, I also have these like readings almost immediately after graduated from NYU. Um, we were lucky enough to know the graduating dramatic writing students. And, um, and so I would just invite them to my, tiny Brooklyn apartment, you know, with my bedroom in my living room and make a big meal from the co-op and like feed a bunch of people. And we would read scripts, whether they were film or, you know, not, not so much TV at the time, but the theater scripts and give feedback, do our best, you know, to try to protect that process. And we did that for 10 years. Yeah. Um, and so I think in many ways, I saw myself as a facilitator. Okay. I didn't realize it was producing. So there was that. Um, I would go to bat for other people. I would write these like really audacious emails on behalf of my writer friends mm -hmm. who I just thought like, oh, they're so, you know, they're so delicate. They're so introverted. Like they shouldn't have to, you know, and many of them didn't have representation. So it just yeah. made sense to me. Um, and also there might be a job on the other end of it for me mm -hmm. too. Um, not always, but that wasn't as much the point. It was yeah, just yeah, like yeah. A growing, growing community. Mm -hmm. and like I realized in the writing after that first like bloody draft was done I needed help like mm -hmm. I really needed I needed practical dramaturgical help so someone could tell me like oh you know like I we got audition sides, right? Like we have a sense mm -hmm. of what the structure looks like, what the length looks like, what the tone can feel like show to show to show. Um, but when it came to the entire piece, like en masse, the entire journey of an original pilot, like not a spec, something out of your brain, um, where you're kind of like, okay, this feels like a moving target. Do the pages reflect my intent? Mm-hmm. Um, what was my intent? Has it changed? Mm -hmm. Like all of that, I needed sounding boards. So at first I needed like dramaturgical help from my community. And mm -hmm. so I kind of went in, in different ways. Like my friend, Jennifer Joan Thompson is this incredible Chilean theater history scholar. And she does a lot of reading and understanding about like all things theater. So she was one of my first readers, my friend, director, Carlin Vaney, um, like was the, I think she was the literary manager for the law for, um, New Georgia's for, I want to say seven or eight years. Mm -hmm. So she was a wonderful, like first reader for me. And then after those other passes, like I have a, a couple friend, um, and they come from theater making, but now they also write for TV as well. Um, Duncan McMillan and Effie Woods, and they gave me feedback and in a really generous you know, like they were like, okay, we have a five page Google spreadsheet and we want to sit down with you and like, but we don't want to just plop it into your email. Like, let's have a conversation. Wow. And it was, I mean, it was almost like having, they were so generous in that because it was like having an exec meeting mm -hmm. already with a show in development. And they were like, you know, let's think about like these character things. We love this, you know, like all that positive feedback fronted. And then here are the headlines. Like, here's what's working structurally. Here's what we're hungry for. Um, did you mean this when you said this? Like, all of that. And 
that helped me to understand that process. So slowly going out on a limb and asking for help on the page, that was one part of it. The other part of it is the selling. Mm-hmm. And you don't realize that you're selling when you're selling. And I, I would be the first person to say like, oh, salesman, like Dale Carnegie, screw that shit. You know, like that, not yeah. for me. Um, my friend, actress Kate McCluggage says like, she's like, you're one of the best salesmen I've ever met. Mm. At first, of course, I took offense to that. And now I start to understand like, oh yeah, I was like hard selling everybody. Mm. I realized like I wasn't going to learn um, in this lane of writing if I didn't start selling myself. What do you and mean by that? I, yeah, right. It like, I, I think I'm still learning. I think a part of it was like understanding, and this is pre COVID, like 2018, 19, mm-hmm. understanding people's bandwidth for reading. Okay. Because some people are like really fast readers, can give you feedback really fast. Other folks, like their scripts pile up. I'm a very slow, deep reader. Mm-hmm. So if I agree to take something on, like I like to have a timeline, I also like to know what the writer wants to know from me. Like if they want representation and that's the reason they're coming to me, I would like that. I, you know, those, those um, sentiments up front. Yeah. If they want dramaturgical um, queries answered, I want to know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think like the clarity of the ask is paramount. Um, I think also like what served me the most is really sitting down from a curious space asking, like offering to buy someone coffee and saying like, can you tell me what it's like? Like, because you're entering a different culture too in writing for TV, which is so different than feature writing, but so different than playwriting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it is wholly collaborative. And I feel like in that way, like performers are kind of perfect for it. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are these nuanced differences. There's semantics of the room. There's breaking story. There's carding. There's, you know, and um, and there's all these little like idiomatic, you know, phrases that are so specific to writing for yeah. TV. Yeah, learn all those. So I think getting the stories from the source is super, super helpful. And then eventually in a kind of natural way, folks will ask like, what are you working on? Mm-hmm. Um, and then in a natural way, you can tell them. Yeah. And then maybe they offer to read your script. Maybe they don't. The ones who do, maybe they actually do. Um, And then they offer what they can, which is, you know, either mentorship or feedback on the page or maybe a connect to someone um, who they think you should know. Yeah. By way of your taste. So it can be like a really, I think, what was wholly frightening for me that I would never do for myself as an actor, I realized like is an essential part of community building as you grow and enrich your artistry, like regardless Mm -hmm. of your vocation. I look forward to actually starting to like bring more of that into my acting. Yeah. And being less like, less stubborn about doing it alone because we never do alone. Well, I think it's, there's that, the never doing it alone, but also there's a humility in owning what you don't know in a way that feels very genuine because that's what it is. You know, I think anybody can feel when somebody's like, Hey, I like really, Mm -hmm. really want this to be good. I really want this. I want to learn how to be better. 
mm-hmm. how I, I admire you and therefore I'm coming to you with deep humility in the fact that mm-hmm. I am not there yet. Can, what wisdom do you have? Like, I think there is that exchange of caring about somebody else's well-being, recognizing where you feel you are in comparison to like their quote unquote stature and owning that as a relationship builds where you're not trying to be somebody that you're not and pull ranking just to like, it's like, no, there's something around like, hey, you, you're good at this. And I really <laughs> love that. And are you cool to like share that with me? That is a different kind of ask. I love that. I love that distinction because I, I don't know about you, but a lot of my mentors as a performer in New York largely were older men mm-hmm. who had been doing this for a long time, right? Like those old theater dogs. You're all the war stories. I was not lucky enough to know a lot of women over a certain age who were doing this, mm. um, let alone moms like women who had grown families alone or with a partner. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I felt really personally very isolated Mm -hmm. in that way. And I've learned in this recognition, as you're saying, like of that humanity in sitting down with someone you know a little, maybe from another collaboration, um, someone who is friends of someone else you mutually trust and admire, um, that you are embarking on a potential relationship. Exactly. Exactly. And in that, like it, it is, there is give and take. And I have so many now, like, thankfully, like just incredible women, um, of a certain age in my life who have raised families Mm -hmm. who are not afraid to talk about what they get paid weekly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what you think, um, lower, level writers should get lower to mid-level writers should get paid mm-hmm. um what the opportunities were and weren't for them 10 15 years ago yeah and where they think this industry is going as far as leadership goes yeah. and how we can grow and change and dismantle a system that was not built for us for women mm-hmm. for femmes, for people across the gender spectrum like and culturally speaking as well like mm-hmm. that those are hard conversations that <laughs> We wouldn't, I don't know about you, but like, we wouldn't have those backstage. Yeah. Um, And I think a lot of it was just like, not being included in the conversation. Yeah. Um, But I I think both the time has like, we are becoming more and more awake to all of these essential things that we need, whether it's fair pay, whether it's like actually making room for families, what does that look like? day basis and in theater and film and tv it's not it's not so terribly different they're both very behind the times 100 percent, but it's on us to to burn it down grow bigger yeah um shifting gears into more like of the actual tangible writing stuff i like how you owned the fact that you were like as somebody who didn't know structure didn't like structure the finding of the structure the first time that you really sat down and wrote dreamers you were like what is this and people were like we need to tighten this and blah 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 blah, blah. and i desperately relate as you saw me in your first class being like i don't know what i'm doing and you're like exactly and that's okay just write it and i'm like but how so now that i'm on the other side and have a complete pilot that still needs to probably have like minor tweaks. 
Um, it's so good. It's thank so you. Thank you so much. I'm yeah. pumped about it. So yeah. thank you, really. Um, but as somebody who also entered into that space, um, mm -hmm. really not knowing or frankly liking structure myself, um, let's break it down for those who are listening in like, you know, the TLDR um, breakdown. Mm -hmm. You have an hour long, and this is obviously also mm -hmm. mentioning that now there are TV shows that do like 42 minutes or like 36 minutes, like oh, no yeah. longer the standard, like you only have half hour, you only have hour. There are those middle grounds, but for the purpose of this conversation, <laughs> let's focus on a half hour structure versus an hour structure. And let's really break that down in terms of acts, in terms of ABC stuff, in terms of that kind of thing and how, and maybe how um, you like doing that for yourself or in the the writing structures that you create. Sure. Love it. Um, so I'm no TV historian, but generally speaking, um, television before 2000 or so, like was split up for the most part into four acts, uh, regardless of whether you were looking at a half hour or an hour long script. Now we have more structured distinctions between them. And again, mm -hmm. like this isn't the kind of thing that like, you're gonna talk about so much with um, your exec necessarily, but you will definitely encounter in a writer's room. And I didn't even have act breaks. I didn't have that structure baked in so much to my pilot. I just learned as I went, mm -hmm. um, trying to create peaks and valleys of plot along the way. Um, I learned it in the writer's room though, because it was all in front of me on the board. So yeah. in a half hour, you're generally looking at a three act structure. So within that structure, um, you want your inciting incident uh, to be like front loaded. We want like a great opening scene. We wanna meet all of our characters or at least most of them, um, get a sense of like what the tone and the flavor of the show is in regardless of the length of your pilot. Um, those first 10 pages are really paramount. Mm -hmm. because um, obviously like if an assistant is reading your work, you want them to hook in to your world right away. Um, regardless of it, you know, if it seems like really disparate in it's like tone and sensibility, if it's really out there or something really universal and recognizable, mm -hmm. you want people to just plug into that world. So that means like your style, like your tone, your themes, um, all that Aristotle shit, like it totally applies. Um, yeah. And a really like fetching paradoxical hero or maybe anti-hero and like everyone they encounter um, who's of import to that world. So you want all of that in your in your first act. In your second act, you're writing into the midpoint. This is where things tend to dip. So you want to make sure that you make your hero bob and weave for all of the things that they are driving for. Mm -hmm. um, act outs are also very important. So at the end of your of each act, we call them act outs, which is basically like a serving up of plot, maybe a big old question mark. Um, and generally speaking in network TV, you remember this. Why do we have act outs, Jennifer? Commercials. Commercials. Show me the money. So we want them to be fetching enough to where people actually come back after, yeah. you know, Budweiser commercial. So, um, and then they get the answers to all those great questions following the act outs. So we move through the midpoint, leading us into our third act. 
that's when you often have this like dark night of the soul moment where like the hero's mired in all this conflict that they can't like lift off their shoulders without the help of the other supporting characters. Mm -hmm. We want to see them do something extraordinary and lead us to this like, you know, thrusting forward, like catapulting, like ecstatic climax where we see them do something extraordinary. Yeah. Um, to remind us like why the hell we're going to watch them for a whole season of TV. And then we get that resolution into like a final act out for the pilot. So that's like the three act structure for a half hour, Yeah, um, which is usually a comedy or some kind of comedy. Um, but now more and more, we have like dramatic instances of half hours as well, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a five act structure for an hour long, which is, it, that's been most of the work I've been paid to do. It's all the same elements, just split up and spread out over five acts as opposed to three. So your midpoint comes around, you know, act three. We still want to have like, it's funny. I think a pilot's, I think I mentioned this in class. Like, I think a pilot's is like the launch of your series. Mm-hmm. So act one is like the launch of the launch, which makes it that much more um, essential to everything else you're going to set up. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so that's pretty much the distinction. Beautiful. And then how do you like to teach that? Inter- I'm just I'm like teeing <laughs> us up towards basically your the spreadsheet that you make us all do for A, B, and Cing. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious how you help people create that kind of structure for themselves as they are building their pilots. And I guess even doubling back, even before one is to do all of this, the key elements that are important to have before one even begins writing whatsoever. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Don't do what I did, which was like, I'm just going to write this thing. And you start writing. And then (laughs) I like, and my car runs out of gas Um, somewhere around act two or three, if I'm lucky. Um, I think like, sometimes we get antsy, especially if we're like, oh, I have an idea for a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, To sit down and like really invest in those different like foundational elements of story. And what I try to do in my classes is like the same thing I do with my incredible manager, which is like, she knows that I come from an acting tradition. So she's like, oh, like lean into what you know. I bring her a character breakdown Mm -hmm. and it's not like a sweet short summation. Um, It is like, sometimes I look at it and I'm like, oh damn, this is like a novel. Like who are these people? Yeah. Just introduce us to them on the page. So like at least a paragraph, doesn't matter what tone you're writing in. Like it can come from like a third person perspective, like you're describing them, but it doesn't have to. If you're like, oh, I'm blocked as a, you know, as a maker, like I'm not used to doing this. It feels like a book report. Write it from the POV of the character. Um, Like switch it up for yourself, make it fun. And just like delve into less adjectives like yeah you want to get a sense of like type and all of that if you're if that's clear for you but i would say more anecdotes Mm -hmm. so like he's the kind of guy who can't pass a kitchen table with a bowl of fruit without making a banana phone for his toddler rather Mm -hmm. yeah so like that kind of stuff like very very um 
descriptive because it's a story rather than descriptive because it's the visual. Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think the most important thing is like, can we see some nuance there? Like mm-hmm. we, we all, like how many times have you read the phrase heart of gold? Mm-hmm. Like how many times have you seen like the word savvy or like, you know, like one adjective after another, after another, it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I know them. Like I want to know that you are the only person as the writer who actually gets the whole scope of who this person is. Yeah. Because again, like we're, we're like growing roots, right. For a lot of great, television and a mm-hmm. lot of great like story unspooling so going deep and going paradoxical i think is really valuable so that's just one that's character breakdown yeah um you want a great log line and sometimes like a great log line can feel like a moving target until even after you've written the pilot yeah but like trying to figure out like what happens um in this pilot for anybody who doesn't know what a log line is what exactly is it a log line is um, what this story's about. It's pure plot. It's, you know, I'm an older millennial, so we used to look at the newspaper mm-hmm. back in the day when we were little to find out, like, what movies were playing. Exactly. It's just one to two sentences that usually involve, like, the hero, the anti-hero, or whatever, and, like, the conflict they're up against. What's the reversal? What's, like the tone and feel of the show too if it's a funny show like the log line should be funny yeah. if it's like sinister and you know like simmering like oh like let the log line read that way too yeah um and the kind of sibling to the log line is a story engine and i think that that is um that might be my favorite element these days it's like it's theme but it's not just it's not just one thing and it's not like a list of themes like comma 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 it's the story engine you remember like how how would you describe it i'd say it's a lot of questions at least uh-huh. for me that was helpful um it's more like a universal idea concept thought that will arguably be used throughout the entire series that people in the show like your characters will be grappling with or is arguably the larger question that the entire like universe you're creating um is wondering about or comes up against within the various conflicts that come up am i helping Mm -hmm. is this help is this right yeah yeah, i love it love it no it's so great this is yeah that's exactly it's like and i like to think of it um as because I like to take it back to like my journalism training. So I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, well, what's going to yield like generative story? Because TV mm-hmm. is generative, right? It's not like a film with like a straight beginning, middle, and end. Um, and I like to think of the story engine, just as you say, as like the central question that every character relationship, every scene, mm-hmm. every episode of TV and every season potentially seeks to answer. So if you could identify that central question, which is just, as you say, like largely has to be universal in many Mm -hmm. ways, like just nail it to the writer's room wall. Um, So then people are lost and they're like, oh, I'm in the middle of act three, episode three. And I don't know why these people are talking to each other. And it's like, well, look at that. Like Mm -hmm. what, what question are we seeking to answer here? And how does that fit in 
to everything else mm-hmm. um, that this story continues to barrel towards. Um, yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Have you been using the same monologue for years and could use a new piece? Are you applying to BA, BFA, or MFA programs and need a monologue for that process? Are you simply someone who has no idea where to search for monologues? Well, lucky for you, I do what is called monologue sourcing, in which I find monologues specifically chosen for you. So many artists use pieces based off external labeling for types and roles, rather than find pieces sharing who they really are and what speaks to them. So we meet virtually together, and you share with me who you are as a human, what you love, dislike, your values, beliefs, family, friends, love, politics, you name it, I will help guide you through this, don't worry. And then I go off on my own, and I find you monologues chosen just for you that fit like a glove. I have been doing monologue sourcing for years as an extension of the coaching I do with artists, and I have found pieces in this way for over hundreds of artists thus far. So if you are someone who wants to feel empowered about the monologues you bring into rooms and use for auditions, I would love to help you find them. And because you are a dedicated listener of the Empowered Artist Collective podcast, I want to provide you with a custom link to an exclusive rate when you check out today. Head to empoweredartistcollective.com slash podcast promo to register. That's empoweredartistcollective.com slash podcast promo. I cannot wait to find you monologues you absolutely adore. And so now that you hopefully have created a log line, your story engine, and dove into your character descriptions, mm-hmm. you had guided us towards these spreadsheets with a capital S. <laughs> to put these in what I'd outline, like an outline basically mm-hmm. by labeling mm-hmm. them, you know, your A, B, and C. Can we talk about that for a sec? Totally. A, B, and C stories. So I didn't even realize what they were until I was in the writer's room. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's good to know because they help to establish like what the real estate um, of your story and from whose POV right. page by page um, you would like to, like how you want to calibrate it as a maker. Um, so the A story is where we spend most of the real estate um, in the procedural. It could be the crime of the week um, or the medical dilemma of the week. Mm-hmm. Um, the B story has a 10, and this is just traditionally in TV. You can mess with it however you want. It's really the showrunner's prerogative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have found that to be consistent room to room. Uh, the B story, generally speaking, is the love story. Um, or it can be a relationship of like great antagonism between the hero and someone else. Mm-hmm. Maybe they don't even encounter each other. Maybe they're just kind of hunting each other from afar. But that's that's the B. That's like the second most um, the 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 real estate in second place mm-hmm. to the A story, essentially. And then the C story. It can be more of a universal um place where you spend real estate on um so less scenes in the b which has less scenes in the a um it also can be its own kind of investigative query whether it's more emotional whether it's more procedural um in one of the shows that i worked on which was a procedural show with romance in it like that c story was actually an ongoing investigation that took us through the entire series Mm -hmm. So we got a little bit 
of traction with every episode until finally it was teed up and it was the season finale. Got it. So there was that continuity therein too. So it's really just a matter of like how you want to frame it. And I would say keeping A, B, and C stories as simple as possible. Um, like Adam versus the hospital culture uh, for an A. And for the B, like Adam and Tom's relationship. And for the C, um, you know, I don't even know. What could the C be? I'm like, what show? I'm like, Adam. I was like, are you going Adam and Eve? Like, where are you going with Adam? I was like, Adam and who? Adam. I, know, I know. I, I was like, where are we that. going? Um, I guess I'm hearing this is like a medical show, right? Is this, we're talking I about the hospital. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or something. And you had, wait, so you had the second one as Adam and a love interest. Is that what you said? Yeah. Adam and Tom. Um, couldn't the C also just be like the general, like, I mean, this is like, but like the larger state of like the health system in oh, some way. That. And then you have like, and I don't know, like the practices of like the health system coming up against, uh, this particular institution. I don't know. Oh my God. That's so rich. Yes. Yes. Great. Nailed it. Somebody writing this, let us know. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, thank you for going through that. I know like talking about the minutia isn't necessarily fun. And obviously, you know, this, I guess I want to also mention that in, in order to, you know, break structure, you kind of need to know the structure. I think that's something that I've felt with my, at least with my writing or the things that I think about or the way I like to tell stories. It's like in order for people to actually understand how it can in theory be marketable or how they can put this into, you know, their actual register of shows that they're putting in, they need to be able to understand how it functions. Mm -hmm. So within that, you kind of need to know the structures that you can play with so that you can in theory flip them on their head if you need to is kind of what I'm understanding. Absolutely. And I think like, you know, we're seeing more and more exceptions to the rules, which uh-huh. is great. Like I want to see, you know, an hour long that's super lean, that's 48 yeah. and like uninterrupted by commercial breaks. I want to see, you know, these like Stranger Things episodes that are movies in and of themselves. Yeah. These are makers that are given a long leash to do, yeah. you know, like they have carte blanche um, yeah. after a certain point. And you may not have that as yeah. like I have found like as a writer, like making their way in. So if you have these recognizable structures in place, then people are less likely to negate them. And they also understand like, oh, you know, this person understands structure. Um, that doesn't mean that you don't want to mess with the yeah. form. You should. And and I would say like, you know, there are these rules in play, like you can only have one protagonist and all of that. And now we're seeing more and more exceptions to that. Mm-hmm. Um, I I think like, any rule is bendable yeah. and hopefully breakable um, yeah. as you move forward. And some of it comes down to like the buying and the selling, right? Like some of it is like, okay, what are we purchasing here? And what are the expectations for the room? How many episodes? How long will those episodes be? That of course translates to production costs, yeah. um, how many days you shoot and all of that. So it's all relative to the situation, but I think that thinking big and, you know, like throwing grenades in the structure, once you understand it, yeah. is super fun. And I would say essential in terms yeah. of like having something to say about the form. Yeah. Um, having been in some writer's rooms yourself, 
I know you had mentioned, you know, like breaking story and carding and all that. What are some of these like other little things? And obviously we can talk about what those two things are too, but like, what are some other things that while you were in those rooms, you discovered that you find might be helpful for people on the other side of it as they are creating? Having good handwriting. (laughs) That that can make you indispensable in a room. You wouldn't think so, but um, I remember... Uh, a buddy of mine is an incredible writer, um, Tatiana Suarez Pico. She she told me like as I was interviewing, um, going through generals for my first like round of staffing, she was like, "Do you know what carding is?" And I was like, "No." Like I had no. I was like eyeball deep in pilot scripts, and I was like, "A what?" She was like, "Yeah, you're gonna need to know what this is." And you just take a big old note card, and you are writing what happens. Like what is the um, the two to three sentences of like what happens in each scene. So each scene goes on a card. Um, the person with the best handwriting, usually the room assistant or like the upstart who can just write in all caps, you know, like keep it very like theater scenic clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody can read it. You put it on the board underneath one of those acts and that's where it belongs. Um, they get ripped up all the time. So carding is like putting those scenes into um, their placement mm-hmm. for the show. Um, you're often working with an outline, but you're also kind of like, when you're in the room, you're iterating together. And yeah. that's uh, it's so much fun to like, just bat around ideas. I was petrified when I first started. Um, and I didn't understand that like, it's not about making a three point shot every time with those ideas. It's really about like, throwing it out, throwing it out, throwing it out, not being very uh precious yeah about your idea and whether it's going to get the green light from the showrunner understanding that like the best idea should win mm-hmm. and hope it does sometimes it's just the showrunner's ideas that win and that's okay um but it's such a great moment of learning because then you can see like who's amazing at pitching who's mm. super charismatic like some people like they have to kind of like barrel through their idea and they prepared it on their page and that's what they're doing other people are like you can see them like pulling the idea out of the sky and it's like in the moment and they're just kind of winging it and they're out in the skinny branches of thought you know like mm-hmm. some people like get up and embody characters it's so fun and ridiculous and yeah. like just it's it's magical like a writer's room in person is magical. We can do it over Zoom to a point, but mm-hmm. like especially in the early stages of story, um, when you blue sky together, which just means brainstorm. Like yeah. we're gonna blue sky the character of Ian, and we're gonna keep going, and like, and then we're gonna blue sky like Ian's mom and like their relationship. That's just like throwing different ideas, yeah, out and seeing what sticks, and not being wedded to any one outcome. That kind of yeah. thing. Can you talk um, about breaking story a little bit? Yeah, breaking story is just so and, and, similar to like when a novelist, it's similar to when like a novelist talks about like breaking a novel's spine. Mm-hmm. Um, it's super visceral language. Um, I feel like we should have something else to call it. But, um, <laughs> but you're basically just figuring out what the plot is. Mm-hmm. So, like scene by scene, what happens in the plot. Um, and that, for folks who are very plot averse, like myself, can be a really harrowing experience. That was literally I, the worst thing I had to do in your class. 
Oh my God. Yeah. When you guys had, I sent you away and I was like, yeah. okay, and now we're going to break story. I was like, I don't, I hate this. No, cause it's all, yeah. It's like you come from like being a character driven person as an actor, primarily that's my access point. Now you're like, forget the people. What are we doing? And I was like, I don't, they can huh? do anything. You're like, well, that's the whole point. Narrow it down. It's like, I, there's so many options. You're like, well, make a fucking decision. I, I can't. What do you, like, I need 17 seasons for, like, I, I have so many, op- like, what the fuck do you want me to do with this shit? Like, no. Thing. Anyway, it's like, a lot of feelings. You have an embarrass- it's wonderful because when you have an embarrassment of the uh, possibility, right? Yeah. Where you're like, you know, if you don't know who these people are, you're not going to know how they act. in any number of situations. And I think that in many ways, like, especially in comedy rooms, if you have a lot of improv people that can really serve the room. And I've been lucky enough to be in rooms that kind of have like a a mixture of styles to them. Um, So I've watched like comedy writers work and there's, there's a freedom of being like, Oh, this person, like they tend to do this, like their mannerisms are like this. So like, if we assign them the task of like having to make coffee for their office, like, what does that mean? You know, Mm -hmm. like what, you know, in the same way that when actors improvise together, like it kind of can blow the lid off. You can go as like intimate or big as you want, depending on like what that situation is going to look like, what it can hold. So I think in many ways, like for folks who are plot averse, like me, like you, um, you know, like every, all these writers, like from Anne Lamont to D.H. Lawrence, they talk about the writing process and people ask them like through the ages, like, what does it take to make a great novel, a great story? Um, and they talk about character. Yeah. It's less like the idea for like what happens. It's really about like who these people are and giving them like simple circumstances making it hard for them, painting them into corners. Like, I feel like in that way, if you think about breaking story by way of character and like, who am I following? What do they want? All these very like rudimentary questions we always ask when we are given audition sides, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what do I want in this moment? What are my expectations? Walking into a room and then like, does everything get turned on its head? Like you and I had an expectation of like, what this conversation would be like. Has it fulfilled your expectations so far? I'll tell you right now, I have zero expectations, but um, so I don't know. Great. That's wonderful. (laughs) I thought maybe we would try to like stay within the lines of the stuff we talked about before. Sure. Yes. Is there like a general idea? Maybe. But like, I don't know, maybe expectations make me want to cry. So I try not to have them because then I'm constantly disappointed. I'm that's a, that's a therapy working in process moment i think that's maybe that's i don't know if it's helpful <laughs> i want to read that chapter i'll, I'll tell you more it. about it if you if you need advice for it i don't know how it's going but it's i'm really trying that's yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> um i'm curious for anybody who is dancing around this idea of writing and they maybe have some ideas for different you know pilots or movies or a short playing around in their brain Mm -hmm. what do you think might be a suggestion for people to start or the idea of having a sample or any of those kinds Mm -hmm. of things so it doesn't even begin to feel so overwhelming yeah um what what breaks my heart sometimes 
is to see like like monikers on social media where you see someone's name and they're like actor writer da, 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 da. and i'm like oh they're a writer but like i i've never you know like we, we start to talk about it maybe and there's nothing finished mm -hmm. um and I think in many ways I wouldn't even tell anyone I was a writer for years because of that embarrassment that nothing, nothing complete um, had, had actually like tumbled forth out of me. I'd done devised theater. I'd given other people my IP all the time, you know, like very willingly. Um, but I had never put myself through the rigors of like just finishing a draft that nobody saw. Mm -hmm. um, or very few people saw. And I think that, I think taking the time to actually like stick through that part of the process, I think like having something that's done, many, many people start um, to put stories like pen to paper. We all have stories within us, like every single person, a ton of people will try that. Very few people will finish. Mm -hmm. So I think that first threshold is actually finishing the first draft. Um, and whatever that means for you, like whether you need accountability, whether you have to do it in a class, whether you're angry about the most recent election and that fuels you like through the finish line. Um, I, I think like being armed with your reasons and writing into the fire and it, it can't just be any idea. It's actually got to be something that like, you like your compass as an artist as a maker um as a citizen like has to be i think um just acutely pointed to mm -hmm. it like i am going in this direction it could be dead wrong and i'm gonna go and i'm gonna see how far it takes me and after you finish that process from there i think making sure that that piece is as great as it possibly can be. And I think that like a lot of folks like want to talk about, I think everybody wants representation, right? We all want great representation. Not all representation is great. And I know, cause I've been around the block, like mm -hmm. in different arenas, you know, by way of acting and writing. And so I think sometimes we get ahead of ourselves kind of similar to like actor, writer, whatever. Um, it's, you can get a job in TV without representation. Mm -hmm. um, it is possible. I've seen it many, many times. Before. My first TV gig on New Amsterdam, I booked without reps. This. Yes. That's it. There was no one way. There is no one way. And, and I think like it comes down to the work you bring to the table, right? And the community you build around you. And like yeah. a lot of things are out of our control, but the work itself is entirely within our control. Yeah. So focusing on the things that you can control which are like, okay, now let's look at this like bloody dirty draft. What do I love about it? What do other people love about it? Um, what is missing? Like, mm -hmm. what did I attempt to do that's not showing up on the pages? Um, getting gentle feedback from people you trust. Like all of that helps you get that draft to a place where ultimately it can land on anybody's desk. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they can do for you. It doesn't matter um, if they have nothing to do with this industry, but it can land on their desk and move them 
yeah, and show and speak for you in a room that you're not even in. And that is the beautiful thing about writing. I have to say that like, it was a, a really like lovely discovery. I was like, oh, wow. Like you can do it with a tape to a certain extent. Yeah. Theater is a live communal experience. That's something else, but a great script like can transport someone. It truly can. And that I like, I've made friends from all over the world by way of something that, you know, they just had five minutes and they started reading. And that's so, that's pure magic to mm -hmm. me. Um, and it is something that everyone has in them. Like every artist has in them to give. Yeah. Um, when we really focus on that, that intent of story, like you don't have to go into it thinking like, I have this big thing to say, like you might discover what that is in the doing, mm -hmm. but just starting and saying like, I am gonna get this done. Like for me, it took like writing until 4 a.m. <laughs> like every night for a month, it took like turning down theater gigs because I couldn't do eight shows a week mm. and the rewrite. So I started teaching during the mm. day. Um, so that became like another kind of like recalibration of my acting career and like how it fit into my writing career as I learned. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think after that piece is like singing for you and you can put it down for a bit, then the next one. And usually something that's either like maybe deeply contrasting to the one, the, the, the first um, and, and or like maybe something that's just adjacent. Yeah. Totally that's similar, but the story is totally different. Yeah. So get another side of you. What I hear what you're saying is you know, the completing part of the process is usually the thing that bogs most people down, um, where arguably many people kind of begin to start or they have the idea and then the plotting of it starts to happen. But it's really the like, let me get to that last sentence that feels a little terrifying. And so it's just a matter of like being willing to go there, even if it's your first pancake it's and it's a total mess that like mm -hmm. it's done. And then you can always go back and edit it to not like ad nauseum but it's a matter of like actually being I don't know if the word is disciplined enough because I hate that word but like disciplined enough or willing or able to be brave enough frankly to just go messy on it and let it exist and come out of you in whatever shape it is so that you can then revise accordingly um yeah. you know it's an, yeah it's an interesting thing because mm -hmm. I feel like so many of us, myself included, clearly, that's how I found you, have trouble starting um, mm -hmm. and doing of the thing that is absolutely the, you know, the cross that I bear in my mm -hmm. own creative endeavors. If there's so many of them and the starting of it feels really scary, but arguably it's actually the ending. <laughs> it's like how many ah. times have we gotten to that point where like, oh my God, how do you close this thing up? How do you tie that bow? How do you make this, mm -hmm. you know, riveting enough that somebody wants to, in theory, come back and watch episode two? Like, that mm -hmm. is all and also it feels really scary to have this thing that you love quote unquote be over right there's like the ending of that that somehow feels like a button to this creative process even though it's not but like all of these things are obviously all wrapped up into our own personal journeys of who we are and where we've come from and why we relate to things the way that we do but i think it's important and helpful to name that both either the starting or the ending if they feel mm -hmm. difficult are not easy to do oh. and also owning like why it's important to try to just 
build in ways for you to do it so that you can at least feel what it feels like to have accomplished it, even if it's messy and gross and not exactly what you want. Absolutely. I have a question for you, a very personal question. Okay. Um, Do you ever get really emotional towards the end? Like you put it down, you avoid it, you even cry about it, like just... The, I like in in not wanting it to end or not knowing. Puma, you literally, I I literally finished our first class together. I didn't give you a fucking ending, so yes, I literally uh, didn't end it. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I, literally, I literally was like, I don't fucking know. Here's 17 options to yeah. the rest of the cohort in the community. Here we are. Can you all tell me which one you like most? And they're like, Jen, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, write your ending. And I was like, I don't know how to do. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I couldn't. I don't think it was like I wasn't sad about it. I had 8,000 options and I couldn't make a choice. I was in like, a, what is it? Something paralysis. It's um analysis paralysis. Like I literally yeah. couldn't make that decision. I didn't. <laughs> like, oh, fantastic. It's just so I think it's so indicative of like a process that really works on you too, yeah. because in all of those possibilities, you know, if you had the benefit of a writing room, then you could like put it to a vote. If you yeah, really exactly, I wish and I could have. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been so much easier. Really yeah. A hundred percent. I think endings are really, really difficult. And especially when you, when you put your art and soul into a thing, or if the piece has been surprising you along the way and you thought like, Oh, maybe it's just this, it's a simple little this. And you realize like, Oh, this is why I needed to tell the story. Maybe that dawns on you throughout the process. Like it, it often does with me and often I don't want to land it. I don't want to end it. I don't, you know, I, I come to fall in love with these, you know, these weirdos that I make and, and it's hard. It's yeah. really hard to, and also, I don't know about you, but I start to get into that weird self-judgy place of like, oh, well, this is not good enough. And like, 100%. that's enough. And like, what's good enough for them? Like, we've, we've come this far together. Like, 100%. I want to give them something like, um, then maybe the characters, like something, um, something worthwhile mm-hmm. that's satisfying. And, and I think, you know, I had this director once who began as an actor and she was in class, I think with Ron Van Loo at NYU years ago. And she said that she was doing a Sam Shepard scene with a partner and it was like the end of the year and everyone was tired of seeing their scene go up over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. And they were tired, I think it was Fool for Love or something. Um, And his direction to them was, can you just do it one more time and everyone's deflated like the whole class is like oh god can we just go to dinner and he said could you could you do just the bad version of it just the worst possible rendering of the scene mm-hmm. and it was apparently one of the most transported things that's ever <laughs> like gone down and um, you know at, at NYU grad acting and like and I I think about that in writing like I think about like what are the bad, cliched like ugh, archetypal choices that like I know someone's gonna reject like right away. No one's gonna like this. No one's gonna want to read this. If you write into that, hmm. right into your like big primary colors blanket ideas, even as a placeholder, then you have something to go back to, mm-hmm. and it's a lot easier I find. Um, in my own process to instead of going back to like pieces of the bridge uh just left 
to the open air. Mm -hmm. um, but if I go back and I'm like, oh, the structure's not sound here. Or like, oh, that's, here's one part of this moment that I love. Everything else I hate. It's like, all right, well, how do I go back in and do yeah. triage? Like, how do I go back in and to mix every metaphor? Like, how do I go back in and like make this compelling to me? Yeah. Um, well, it's about making a choice rather than no choice. I think it's, you know, like I can give a note if somebody comes in and does an audition and there's not a choice to be found, I can't give you an adjustment. Whereas if you come in yeah. and make a choice, even if it's the worst, whatever that even means, like the worst choice, then I can at least be like, that isn't our vision. Can you do something along this line? Or, you know, we're actually going for something more like this. Can you do this kind of thing? Right. So it's like if you come in and you own a choice, even mm -hmm. if the choice is strong and quote unquote wrong, or if the choice is all primary colors or the choice is like the cliche with a capital C, then totally. like we can tell you like, cool, we are trying to go anti-cliche here and that means this or whatever. Or mm -hmm. actually, you're so right. We want to be make this the most cliche thing ever. So can you actually right. really, really lean, whatever it is, really mm -hmm. lean in, you yeah. know? Exactly. It's like, um, oh, the 130%. Can we bring it down to 70? But exactly. yeah. Like, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, I've taken up so much more of your time than I should have, but I just love talking to you and I didn't want it to end. Um, as we begin winding down our time, and by begin, I mean we have to end our time because I don't want to keep owning your time. Um, as we wind down this time, <laughs> is there anything on your heart that I did not ask you that you wanted to share? Oh, gosh. I'm just so grateful <laughs> to our community. I think these strikes have taught me over and over like why community is so important mm. and why hearing one another is so important and why coming to a table and like hearing folks grievances from every single place in the hierarchy where they stand um i think like i love my unions and i think there are lots of things that my unions many of <laughs> aea sag wga like that we can do better um, to serve the membership and all of the membership. And I want something big and impactful for people who are trying to get in to yeah. these unions that can offer so much stability, but, you know, historically, but we're trying to find a way to make them more impactful in our daily mm -hmm. lives. So we're just coming up. So I think in that way, like, yeah, I don't know what the answers are. I think we're all just like continuing to ask the questions. And I'm so grateful for, for the leaders, for those captains, for like the influx of SAG members, like to, to be on, on double strike over the summer and realize like, oh, the solidarity is truly there. Yeah. Like we are all seeing eye to eye and, you know, having folks from IATSE and, you know, it's, it's, and UPS drivers, you know, yeah. like walking along with you, like yeah. we are, we are not different. Mm -hmm. We are not different. And yeah. I think it's going to take a lot of listening, but yeah. um, I'm excited too. Yeah. Um, I adore you the most and I'm so grateful to you yeah. and this conversation and our relationship and um, the new addition to your household that is about to change your beautiful, gorgeous life that I'm really excited for you to have brought into your life. I'm just excited for all of those things. And um, I'm so grateful for you giving so much of your time <laughs> to us. Um, for anybody who wants to work with you, who wants to find you um, to take your classes or to 
um, read your scripts or to hire you in writers' rooms where within your boundaries is best for people to do so? Oh my goodness. Um, well, to take my classes, uh, my website is actually being built right now. So I would actually say, find me on IG. Um, and it's just my long last name, Christina, spelled C-H, Pumariega, uh, uh, P-U-M-A-R-I-E-G-A. Um, that's my handle. And find me there, DM me there. Um, the classes are finishing up. Um, the, the, the final ones for 2023 are happening right now. Um, but there will be more classes in the spring. And as far as work goes, I'm represented by Industry Entertainment, and my manager is Brandy Rivers. And um, I, I also uh, just signed with IAG, um, and so Beth Blickers and and Nate and Hallie, those are my people there. So yeah, it's yeah, learning a lot of learning. It's amazing. Um, I adore you. Thank you for this. Thank you. If something in this episode resonated with you, and more importantly, if this podcast means something to you, it would mean the most to us if you would leave us a positive review. This means the most in podcast land and allows us to continue creating these episodes for you weekly. If you are not yet doing so, please follow us on Instagram at Empowered Artists Collective, on TikTok at Empower Artists Collective, more on our website at empoweredartistcollective.com. If you are seeking some fun, cute merchandise, we have that link for you in the show notes. As always, I am so endlessly grateful that you keep on coming back, and we will be back again next week. Until then.